Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, if you're still listening. This is episode three. I have my friend Adam Pitts on for this episode, but real quick, I wanna make a shout out to my buddy Carl Wiggers, who loaned me some mics and a little recorder. Um, Things are sounding a lot better now. Hopefully your ears are no longer bleeding from the bad audio. So thanks a lot, Carl, for making things sound nice. Um, So Adam Pitts is a real estate agent and broker, and he flips houses and apartment complexes. He's an investor. Um, And so I, of course, really wanted to hear about all of those things. We probably went too far in the weeds, actually, for the first 30 minutes of this episode. So if you're not interested in real estate, just skip that part or make it through the first 30 minutes. And I promise we get into some really cool stuff. Um, He talks about climbing mountains, and uh, which he's done a few times. He talks about being a parent, which I am about to be, so that was uh, great to hear. We even talk about uh, life itself and the legacy that he wants to leave behind. I thought it was really great, and we recorded this episode actually in his in his office, and he's got some inspirational quotes um, on the wall in his office. And you know, sometimes some people are like, oh, motivational quotes, like, you know, what do they really do? But it was really cool to hear him actually talk about his life in a way that lines up with these quotes and him not even realize really that that was happening. Um, so somebody that, that lives out um, what they talk about is cool. And it was really cool to hear about some of the things that he's worked on, is working on, and plans to do in the future. So thanks again, Adam, for your time. I appreciate you sharing a little bit with me. And hopefully all of you out there enjoy this episode. So I guess we could start and you could possibly give me, I already like am familiar with your background, but for people listening, all 11 people listening, uh, give a little bit of like what you've been doing for the past 10 years of your life and what you're doing now, I guess. 11 is pretty good for only having that's right. your third podcast. Third, third episode, that's 11, adding, 11 listeners. Man, that's some uh, good scaling right there. What was the question? I was marveling. At, I was marveling at your your Adam, scripture. Who are you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Uh, well, I'm a real estate investor. I guess real estate guy. I guess investor is probably too uh, basic. So, uh, but no. I, basically, my wife and I flip houses and do rental properties, and also run a real estate brokerage. So we do pretty much all things real estate. So mainly flipping old historic houses that most people are scared of, uh, that uh, most people don't want to touch. That's kind of become our little niche, nice. so to speak. Um, well, okay, this is like a, a common question. How did you get started in real <laughs> estate investing? Well, I got started in, well, first, I little backstory, I never wanted to own a house. I was convinced that if I owned a house, I would be too tied down. And so when we got married, I was telling my wife, Abby, that I only ever wanted to rent. And uh, she thought that was silly. And so we ended up, long story short, uh, I ended up getting my real estate license because I was looking for a job change. And then once I got into real estate sales, I started working with real estate investors. And then... uh, through that process, we uh, someone privately came to Abby and said they had some cash and they'd always wanted to flip a house. And Abby had also always wanted to flip a house. And uh, I had learned about flipping through these various real estate investors and uh, one of them canceled a deal, a contract on a house he was gonna flip. 
And so I said, well, we have some money and here's a house that I thought was a good deal for the investor. I guess we should put our, put this money where, where our mouth is. So we bought our first place. When was that? Oh, uh, 2014. Okay. Did you sell it for profit? Yeah. We made like 20 grand. Nice. Yeah. Cool. We had um, no clue what we were doing, but we made, <laughs> we made some money. That's always good. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to make 20 grand. Hey. Um, so that, all right. So I want to, as we're talking, I like, I'm pretty familiar with what you're doing and stuff. So I wanted to just like get down in the weeds as much as possible. Let's do it. Cause like, I'm super selfish and I don't care what people want to hear. Wanna, you don't know. I want to ask you, this is like, Chase doesn't know. Exactly. This, this whole, the whole reason that we're here is, is an excuse for me to ask you <laughs> de- detailed questions. Um, so, okay. So first of all, I want to know, uh, like how in the world do you find a house that you think has the ability to make you profit? Where's like the, where do you start at? Well, you start with knowledge. If you don't have, if you don't have knowledge, you can't, if you don't have personal knowledge, I would find it much riskier to do what we do. Cause like if you were just counting on agents, giving you deals, agents come to you all day. I have agents still come to me all day long telling me they have some great deal and it's a horrible deal. <laughs> Agents are not good at telling you if it's a good deal or not. They just want to sell some sell a house. So, I mean, for me though, as an agent, obviously I look on MLS a lot, but I don't really find them because I looked. I find them because I know value so that as I look, I can instantly analyze value in the areas that we're looking at. So I find them through knowledge and then I use that knowledge and apply it in the places that the information I need is at, if that makes sense. So what's the, what's the value that you're looking for though? If it's like, a really, if it's a really old house, less, I like to buy them for roughly 40% of what I can resell them for. And the, and the resale is like, that's just where your knowledge comes in. Like, how do you know what you can yeah, actually sell it for? Knowledge. Okay. I mean, of course I'll pull comps from MLS and whatever, but I mean, haven't done it for several years and, we pretty much do most of them in the same areas. So I have a pretty good bead on what stuff will sell for. Uh, and I mean, there's, it's a certain gambling aspect of mm-hmm. it too. You don't really know what you can sell it for. You think you know what you can sell it for. So you buy it for 40% and then. Yeah. 40%. I mean, if you were doing a house in like Broadmoor or some like ranch style house, you probably don't need that sort of discount, but for old houses, and the way that we do them, we don't cut corners, so we pretty much replace everything, and so that gets really expensive. You know, you pretty much can't do an old house properly unless you're lucky. You can't do an old house properly for less than a hundred grand. Wow! So, so you, so the forty percent discount that you're buying from the resale value, not from the current value, but so like, let's say you buy it, you do get it at forty percent. What's the percentage of the value you spend on renovating it? Like what's left over after you? Yeah, I mean, you we'll, try to, we'll try to be, I guess probably an example would be the, the best starting point. Um, and it's not 40% is the goal. I'll normally, I'll normally end up buying them at like 50% of what I can resell them for. You just have to be careful. Uh, so like if I were to buy one, if I was going to, when I analyze the deal, I'll see the property first, and then I say, okay, how much can I resell this for? And of course, we look at price per square foot. Uh, and so if I say, well, I can sell it for, I can resell it for 300,000, and it's 1,500 square feet, so I'm at $200 a foot. So I know if it's an old house in my perfect world, I'm gonna be buying it for less than $100 a foot. And 
yeah, that's pretty much. I mean, I use super simple math. Three hundred. I need to be less than one fifty buying it. And if they, and if they if you can't get it, then you just move on. You're not yeah. getting hung up on. Yeah, I love deals, and I have a really bad habit of getting excited about the deal and not. And then, like once you get the deal, you still have to do the work. Right. And so <laughs> the one there's to me there's one cardinal rule of thumb which we now have kind of made like it really should be on the wall with these other quotes. It should be. It's uh, it's better to miss a deal than lose money on a deal, which sounds common sense when you start buying these properties. For one, they're hard to find, and so you have a you are compelled to want to make deals work. But having done a few now, where I've worked on them for months and months and months, in some case, one case almost a year and a half, and then you lose money on it, that's the worst because it's not like once you start the deal you can just bail. Mm-hmm. Once you have it and you're doing it, you're in. You're in, and so much better to pass than make a mistake okay i have a couple train of questions coming off of that what have you lost how many times like what's your batting average on losing money and and Uh, making money well with the way we run our business sometimes losing money is a little subjective because there's been some that's been really tight but we fund a lot of our bills we just roll them into into Reno costs like car notes and stuff like that as so business expenses breaks even technically technically it paid made some money your, yeah okay right or it may have paid a salary for me for a few months but just on paper there's been two that we've lost money on okay and one of those was like close yeah how, how many have, how many have you done uh one like my 20th oh wow okay ish. yeah so, so we have a very 18 good of 20 average. I'd say that's a very high batting yeah. average yeah Nice. Definitely, yeah, something, something positive, you know. Um, okay, so um, I promise, if if you're listening, we won't get too deep here for a second. I'll start asking some other stuff. But so when you close on a house, and let's say like I don't know, it's like an, an old old house. What's like your plan? Uh, I know you're you're a contractor now. So how much of it are you like going in and and taking walls out yourself, and how much? I mean, do you start making phone calls immediately and setting up contractors? Like, what's the actual process of starting the construction? Yeah, so the process, which we are trying, we're always trying to improve our process, uh, especially if we're trying to think on more projects now. But the real process is as soon as you get it under contract, you start bringing it. You, f- you first have to figure out what layout you're going with for the most part. And then we'll start bringing out contractors, foundation guys, HVAC, plumber, my sheetrock guy, you know, some of the stuff I can estimate myself just from experience, you know? So you're, so you're doing as far as like the cost and budgeting for a deal, you do, do you kind of in your head or on paper calculate how much you're going to spend to these? Cause you got to pay these contractors and sometimes they end up costing more than you expect. Like what's the plan for that well, at the beginning? I try to bring God. That's why I, I, the clearer scope of work you can have on the front end the less change orders you should have during the process, you know? Uh, so I don't really, I mean, there's always some estimate that's going to change, but I mean, I'm pretty good now at ballparking. Like there's a house we're about to close on and it needs a whole new roof and it's like a big roof project. And in my head, looking at it, I said, I bet it'll, we can probably get a quote for about 18. And I got a quote, I got two quotes, but it's right at 18. So you do it a few times and you can start kind of estimating. And I had also created a spreadsheet where I calculated cost from previous projects and then just did some quick math to kind of figure out what my 
vendor's average like cost per foot or cost per whatever was. And then I made it where I can plug in those numbers on my next projects and it'll spit out approximately what their bids will come in at. Gotcha. So just stuff like that. But I mean, it's not, it's, it's more of an art than a science for, okay. for these types of jobs. I guess know? cause you could always change your plan on like what you might actually do if something yeah. doesn't come out back price where you expected. Yeah. I mean, it will always cost more than, than what you want it to. <laughs> That's what I've literally been involved in zero construction projects in my life, but from looking on them, looking at them on the, from the outside, I'm, I'm very much now real. I realize now that all the projects cost more and take longer than you originally planned. Yeah. It seems it, like that's always It will the never case. be cheaper and it will never be faster <laughs> no matter what you do. Uh, so, okay. Backing out a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit cause you're a business owner and you've been technically as a realtor, you're a business owner cause you're kind of like your own thing. Right. So you've been a business owner for like what? 10 years? No. Uh, or you're old seven now, years. So. I okay. know seven time years. does pass, <laughs> but yeah, I guess seven years. Uh, and so we're Ish. sitting in your office right now and you've got quotes on the wall here about from like Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, everything you've ever wanted is on the other side of fear, Georgia dare. So what is your approach now that you've been working for yourself for seven years? How do you balance the, like your 30 year goal and then like your, Oh, I need to go take down this wall in this house. Like what, what's your daily thoughts and planning kind of around that stuff? Uh, well, initially I want every, I want all my goals realized now, right? But that's really not the right way of viewing things. You know, you really have to take little steps to get there. So, uh, now the now the part like for years like when we first got into flipping i knew nothing about construction like zero i did my degree was not in construction it's not like i had no knowledge but i had a degree or anything i knew nothing so over the years i've learned a whole whole lot you know up in february getting my both my contractors licenses so i've learned enough and now i'm trying to transition from the point of swinging hammers to managing the projects. Cause at this point, my, before my knowledge base wasn't there, you know, to be able to walk through a job and like know if people were doing things the right way or cutting corners or whatever. Now that the knowledge is there. I need to switch my role from a got from a, a job that I could be paying someone else 15 bucks an hour to do into a management role so that I can grow and now begin to build the structure to actually build something larger versus like, you know, just doing a few projects a year. I don't know if that makes sense. So it's so you, hard for me because I'm very task oriented. So I'm like, this wall needs to come down today. And there always is that, you know, but we recently hired somebody and uh, kind of hired two people. And so we hired them with, with the understanding that it requires me to extricate myself from the daily activities as much as I can. Otherwise, hiring people doesn't make any sense. So you're trying to, what you're doing now, you're, you're kind of trying to scale and grow into a larger construction company type. Not a construction yeah. company, but you want to be able to do a lot of projects at once. We, yeah, not a construction company. We're trying to scale so we can do more at once, of course, make more money, but also just for more flexibility. Like I didn't become a business owner to, to, 
sit in 110 degree houses swinging hammers. I bought, became a business owner to make, make money, create jobs for people and allow myself to pursue other things I'm really also interested in. So for me, the organization side of it now has more to do with, I mean, obviously we had our business ventures. And so it's like, I want this organization so that these profitable flip ventures can continue but there's a process so that now mentally I can be expanding into trying to get other things going too, mm. if that makes sense. Okay. And you can't do mm. that without, you know, the structure and I can't pursue other things if I don't have income coming in. So it was like in my head, it's like, okay, s- s- big 30 year gold. We have all sorts of stuff. I'd lo- I still would love to have like a tech company, all this stuff, but how do I pay for it in the meantime? So I kind of had to rewind to create some stable income. So you have, uh, how many people work at your brokerage now or licensed at your uh, I just have, I think seven. And then how many people are helping you, your, your wife, Abby, and then is there anyone else currently, like the two people that you just hired, are they in the flip business with you, working yeah, for you? Yeah, one of them is salaried and uh, one of them is salaried and he's I'd eventually going to take on like property management, project management. Right now he's just kind of boots on the ground. Okay. So I'm asking, I'm asking because I was going to ask, what's your theory and or what knowledge have you gained in the past seven, six, seven, eight years, and what's your theory going forward on building a team to accomplish what you know what your plan is? Uh, what's my theory on building a team? <laughs> I'm curious to know how you manage people doing different things at once. I guess. Yeah, I admittedly I'm not great at delegation. Like my life experience has shown me oftentimes it's in my head i'm like it's easier to do it myself and so sometimes i'm not very patient like with training people or whatever so i i i move like very quick i'm like big pictures man you could say hey adam go start a company and that would be all the direction i would need i would just go figure out what kind of company and i would just roll with it you know and but train it you can't really hire someone and expect them to act like that you know and so for me it's been my struggle back when i had a separate real estate team we hired an admin and i was terrible at delegating stuff she would just do work for the other person i worked with because i wasn't giving her work and so for me the struggle with building a team is actually being patient enough to train them and being trusting enough to offload to them because I just have a, uh, feel like I'm a pretty capable person, and so I have a tendency to just want to hang on and do it myself, you know. And that's this, you can't grow a team like that. So this, I'm very much the same way. So give me a tip. What have you learned? It's like how, how can we get? How can you help me get better at delegating stuff? Uh, do you have any secrets? I don't have any secrets, but what I have learned thus far is like, I think it has more to do with. I mean, obviously there's a baseline of like whoever you're delegating to has to be capable of doing it. You know, like if you're trying to code something, you're not going to delegate it to me. And so in my world, recognizing like the guy we hired, Nate, like he is competent. He has a different personality type than me, but he is competent in what I'm asking him to do. And so I just need to trust him to accomplish it and also make sure, make sure that in the delegation that I have taken the, 10 minutes of necessary prep time to make sure he has the information he needs mm. to accomplish it. Because sometimes it's a conversation Abby and I have a lot because I'm so big picture. I just assume everyone else is like that. Whereas a person you're delegating to, or maybe a, a member of your team versus you as the leader of your team, 
the member of your team probably has a different personality than you. And that's probably a good thing because it probably means they want to be the team player, not the team leader. And so recognizing that there's that everyone isn't the same as me. It's like a, such a novel thought. Recognize everyone's not the same as me. And therefore like the personality type of a good team member, someone that you actually can trust to delegate things. They just need a couple minutes of giving them information. And then I, I oftentimes find it's most helpful for me to leave. So like I tell them what I need done and then I leave so that I don't just end up doing it. Mm. And then when I get back later in the day, it's just magically all done really well. Nice. And so that helps me, slowly improve. So is this quote on the wall the biggest thing? Everything you've ever wanted is on the other side of fear. So is it just the fear of giving someone a task to do that's the burden or the uh, uh, hurdle yeah, to overcome? Yeah, it probably, is. It probably okay. is a very relevant quote for that. I wouldn't have thought of it in that perspective, but yes, I, I honestly, it's a, it's a good thing to say because I will, I have really big goals. It will, it literally would never happen without me letting go of the fear of like delegating, you know, and the fear, Oh, they won't do it right. Cause I can't do it by myself. And side note, I don't know if you watched the show, um, uh, well, shoot, was it called billionaire something? This gets billionaire guy. And he, uh, and he moves, he relocates to Erie, Pennsylvania. And we, but they relocate him with like a hundred dollars to his name or $200 to his name. And he has, 90 days to build a business gets valued at a million dollars. Wow. And the 90 days is kind of silly. And I think there was some outside coordination, but what, if you watch the show, what you learn about the guy is not hating on him, but one, he's not like in this context out of his element of billionaire, he's not like super great. Like he sucked at sales. He just was kind of all over the place, but what he was a master at was getting other people to do stuff and not in like a, like he's using them. Like he had a mission, like where he was going and he was able to build this vision around it. I'm sure the television cameras helped, but he was really good at like, Hey, you do this, you do this, you do this, you know? And it kept people bought in. And that's what I took away was like the importance of being able to cast a vision. And then, I mean, he just kind of, he just kind of delegated. And then if they you know, asked him if they wanted to do it, if they said yes, then he delegated. And if they were sucking, he let them know that they were sucking, mm-hmm. you know? And that to me was like the biggest takeaway. Cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's a good, uh, thing to think through. It's like, you can't do it without a team. So like, why not let, let the team do it, set them up to do it. Um, and, all, and, and also like, I think the other thing I, I'm like a big people pleaser. And so in my mind, if you, I forget sometimes, like if you delegate and the person actually does suck, you can just fire them. Like, it's not like you're stuck with them. (laughs) So if you delegate and they don't do what you needed them to do, you can move on. It's not like, so there's no harm in delegating, you know, and that's, what's hard for me. It's like, Oh, wait a minute. If my stuff's not getting done the way I want it to, I am the owner of the business. Therefore it's, it's, it has to be done the way I want it done. And if you're not doing it, I can find someone else that will, Mm -hmm. you know, um, okay. So the business, what do you have happening at the moment? What are you working on? Uh, well, I have a, we have a 3000 square foot house. We're renovating it. We're personally going to move into, I have the, a 14 unit apartment renovation, which is meandering its way to starting construction. And then we have two other flip houses that we're about to, uh, take on. 
And then we have an office that we're sitting in that we rent out the bottom. And then we have the other half of the apartments we rent out and a single family house we rent out and we're going to rent out my current house. Cool. So whatever all that is. Oh, and I have a couple lots I'm selling. (laughs) And you have lots. Yeah. Um, Okay. I want to talk about the apartment complex that you have because this seems like, uh, first of all, it seems like an awesome deal that you found, which is cool. And it seems like a logistical nightmare. But now I know you recently told me that uh, if your plan happens, then at some point very soon, it will basically be... uh, to use a cliche is like cash cow. I mean, right. it, it will set you up to basically fund almost everything that you need. And then everything else you're doing is going to be to make just profit. So right. talk me through this. What, what exactly is it? And then like, how'd you find the deal? And then how did you, how have, I want to just ask questions, I guess, as yeah, we go, go I guess. For it. All right. So it's a 28 unit. Well, it is, it is a, it is designed to be a 28 unit apartment complex. Well, we got it right at a year ago and, um, we were looking for just like, we were looking, we had a duplex. We were looking to kind of dip our toe in like larger multifamily. So we were looking for maybe like eight to 10 units. Uh, and in my looking, I just happened to notice this one cause it's right outside of LSU. It like, it borders LSU's property. And, uh, but it was 28 units, but we always like things that need a little bit of work. And so the description said it just needed cosmetic work so i was like well 28 units it's kind of my personality it's 28 units we are we're looking for eight it's 28 all right we'll just let's just see if we can make it work you <laughs> yeah. know so we wrote up uh it was actually we wrote up an offer for the 28 unit and there was another sixplex that the same guy owned and so we thought we would just kind of sneak the sixplex in as part of the deal and just see if we could kind of send it under his radar <laughs> you know and, uh, but it was listed, I think total was listed for like eight fifty between the two of them. And we wrote up off or we ended up under contract. I'm going to mess up the numbers. We were at like $700,000. Well, when we actually, a lot of apartments, when you buy them, you can't look at them ahead of time. Okay. So, cause they don't want just ran. There's so many people that say they're investors and they'll never buy anything. So they don't want random people looking at units, spooking tenants. So you always have to write up an offer first and then you renegotiate after you look at it. So we went and looked at it, about two thirds of the complex was gutted. It was like, and not like pretty dry, ready to go gutted. It was like moldy sheetrock still hanging. It was like something catastrophic seemed to have happened. And so I was like, man, there's no way I can spend this kind of money. I thought this was like carpet and paint, you know? So we immediately told the seller, like, hey, we can't do this unless we're half of this price. So we like, we have to be 350. This place is falling apart. Thought he would just laugh at us, but he agreed. So he said, all right, I'll load it to 350. So then at this point, I didn't have my commercial contractor's license. So I was bringing commercial guys through and they were all telling me like, dude, you need to run. This place is a money pit. It's going to bankrupt you. This is way too much. And whenever someone tells me that, like, if you tell me that, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to buy it, yeah, because my I had this little chip on my shoulder, like I'm going to prove you wrong. And so my wife and I, like, man, we walked around it. Being spiritual people, we would like prayer walk around it, like, Lord, are we about to make a mistake? But it just felt like, man, it's falling in our lap, you know. Well, we still weren't comfortable at the 350 point because it was going to be about a million dollar project, all in all. And it said, well if I'm going to do a million dollars worth of work, I better end up with a lot of equity in it, obviously. 
And so we're like at 350, I just felt like it was gonna be tight value wise when it was done. So we went back to the seller. I'm like, man, every contract's telling me to run. The only way I can buy this place is if I pay you $4,000 per unit, which came out to, between the two properties, came out to 136 grand. Again, thought that like he was just gonna laugh at us, be like, you've lost your mind. Well, to our shock, he accepted it. And so we bought 30, or 34 units for 4,000 a piece, $136,000 total. Uh, on this property that was listed between the two of them for 850 mm. deal of a lifetime. No doubt. I, I literally ever, I've had so many people bring me to coffee wanting to hear about like what I did for this deal. It was the only way we could, I could literally describe it be like the Lord just dropped it in our laps. Like, here you go. You know, like take this one. And it's, uh, so yeah, that's how we got it. And then we actually, one more smart move, we took the sixplex, we put about $20,000 worth of work into it, uh, put a new roof, new windows, and gutted it, and then resold it to an investor from California for $100,000. Wow. Took the 100000 and paid down the principal on our apartments, and so ended up, we netted eighty, so we ended up essentially paying $56,000 for the apartment For 28 complex, units. For 28 units that touch LSU. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So yeah. what did you say the magic trick was for that? <laughs> um, Prayer. <laughs> uh, so then you have, so you have 28 units and then what's the actual, a million dollar project? Have you spent a million dollars on this? I've spent a million. I've spent, I've spent about 500. Okay. All right. So quick, quick side question before, and then we'll come back to the apartments. Uh, how, how do you finance half a million dollars of work, like um, construction work? Is it, do you have a private investor we, to do it? We or walk you... around the parking lots looking for coins. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we have a, just a local bank that I developed a good relationship with the lender. So and... you do construction, uh, construction loans to yeah. finance project. Yeah. Okay. Is that like, is that you, is it like a business pitch? Like you have to, I mean, you have a relationship with them now, but if somebody wants to do something like this, do they have to go into a banker and basically have the whole thing, like a business plan laid out? They make the pitch and they say yes or no, or? Yeah, uh, I doubt many banks would loan you on these apartments without, unless you were like super well qualified, like had a bunch of cash like you had a bunch or something, of money, yeah. right? And that, that was has not been us. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just that this was a combination, this particular banker was a combination of things. I was good friends with a friend of his. And so, you know, I got to meet, use them on some smaller deals, developed a good reputation, uh, with him and, uh, just kind of a perfect storm, you know? Mm -hmm. So it depends on the, the person most, we've been very fortunate because we've been able to use this program for, you know, 80% of what we've done and, uh, just some of the nuance of his program, most of the properties that we've flipped, we haven't had to put, we have no, we have no investor partner, and we haven't had to put any of our own cash into it. And so it's like, you know, whatever your return is on zero money invested. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's like infinite return. Uh, but it's just been, you know, been a beneficiaries of a really great loan program. So the, okay. So I had like two sides of the question of, on how you planned and your, uh, ex cause you're still currently renovating the apartments. We're about to start phase two, which so is have, the second half. Of right. The, okay. Yeah. Okay. So two, so two questions you could answer them at the same time, I guess, is at the beginning of you, you now close on the apartment complex, you've got the money side and then you've got the work side of this plan to renovate. What do you do? And maybe we 
this might be super in the weeds, but I'm curious. What's the, how do you plan? How many people were in the apartment complex when you bought it? Like renting? Uh, essentially five. Okay. So it was kind of uh, lower. Yeah. So how do you plan, um, on the renovations? Like what's the steps, what steps did you have to go through? Like what was needed? And then how do you, what contractors did you need to do it? And then how did you move the people around to Renovate. Well, so the the five that were in there, we just left them alone. They uh, we just left them in their units, <clears throat> and uh, they weren't paying very much. They were paying old, you know, old rent rates, which we've still left them at, just because in my mind they uh, they suffered through the complex looking like a complete yeah. hellhole. And so it's like, well, if you were going to be patient through that process, I'll let you stay at your low rent amount. Uh, so really, we were only ever dealing with empty units. The first half we did was pretty much just cosmetic stuff. Uh, you know, like some sheetrock work, new roof, air conditioners, you know, that kind of stuff. But, uh, the second half is, is the scary half. That's the half that was like falling apart. Yeah. And that's what you're about to start. Yeah. And it's just been slow because we had to redo the financing for like round two. And then we had to, our architect had to draw everything out and then he had to, so this commercial I had to go through, you know, with the city and figure out what's going to be grandfathered as far as code, what we're going to have to change, all those weird nuancey things, you know, that can make or break a project. So I'm actually excited about the second half because on one where it's like, if you go and if you look in this room, if, if you can see like water damage everywhere and like mold, which you couldn't see into the wall, you're not going to really know what you're getting into. And so there's a lot of unknown, whereas the other side, it's studs, have blueprints for it all. So all my, all my subs should be able to give me pretty exact pricing on everything. And so I'm, I'm curious to do one where it's like, it should be predictable theoretically. Mm -hmm. Like nobody should come on the job. See how accurate you are. Yeah. I didn't realize that we had to rewire. It's like, no, your bid is to rewire everything. Mm. So I'm excited to try it. A little nervous because there's going to be this certain amount of time that the project is completed. So therefore, I have a million dollar loan, but I don't have occupancy yet. And so there's going to be this awkward, hopefully short period of time where I have a finished expensive complex, but only 50% occupancy. Mm. So I'm a little nervous about that window of like getting people. Yeah. Um, and then, so then the money side, and then I promise we'll go to something a little less. There's somebody listening like, what are they even, why are they even talking about this? But I'm interested still. So the money side, like when you go get a commercial loan, like you lay out the project and say, I need this amount of money. Uh, and then they, what's the process? Do they just give you half a million dollars and then you have to put it in an account and then spend it wisely or like what, what's the, no. So they, they do an appraisal subject to all the work you say you're going to do. And so, and then they'll loan me 80% of whatever that appraised value is. And then I make draws from that. So like, as I need money, I email the bank, I say, Hey, I need to pay my window people and gotcha. deposit for HVAC. I need 50 grand. And they put 50 grand in the account. Gotcha. And then they also send it and they send a bank, like an appraiser inspector to come make sure that the items I said I was doing are getting done. So to make sure I'm not just drawing money and going on a trip. So or are you going to, let's say 10 years from now, you ha you do have like 
a, a bunch of money saved up from profits on successful deals. Are you still going to go through a bank to do uh, work like that? Or would you then use your personal money to kind of avoid all of the checks and balances that the bank has to do that probably slows you down some? Yeah. Uh, and not pay It interest. would just depend on the deal. You know, a lot of people will buy it with cash and then refinance, like cash out their money later, but it would just depend. Sometimes you need to buy it with cash, like just for flexibility. And then sometimes it's like maybe the seller's not in a huge hurry. And so you can just go a slower route, you know, so it just depends. I mean, the beauty of using a bank is you always get, you get the leverage, you know? So my, like I mentioned, if I'm putting no money into it and my return is, whatever 10 grand a month then that's and that's like it's literally that's a pretty an good deal. rate of return you know whereas if i had to put a million dollars cash into it and now i'm getting you know 100 grand a year out that's yes. still fine but it's only 10 percent. Yeah. so which is what's what's a good do you know like what's a good rate of return for it's all subjective yeah. to a million different things um okay pivot Segue, not a, right. not a good segue, but bailing. <laughs> we'll probably come back to the real estate stuff because it's interesting. Uh, you just posted, uh, which actually was perfect timing for us getting together and chatting. Um, but you just posted a picture on Facebook of a mountain peak. Yes. So let's talk about mountain climbing. What's so great about mountain climbing? What's so great about mountain climbing? Uh, I've always loved mountains. So, and I've always gone places with mountains. So I think some of it's just growing up around them, you know, and then just growing up around them. What? Where'd you grow up around mountains? Well, I lived in South America for three years in the middle of the Andes and Bolivia. And then in my teenage years, I was traveling to Nepal pretty much every summer. So, uh, you know, obviously the Himalayas and Andes, you can't there are no mountains taller than those. Right. I was so, about to say, you were not in Louisiana if you are no. growing up around <laughs> no. mountains. So you didn't technically grow up around them. I spent three years around them and then each summer around them. Uh, so the mount- mountains, it's like one of those things. I kind of, I did a climb in 2014, right around when we started flipping houses. Uh, actually, when I was climbing the mountain, Abby was having to finish the flip. So she finished our first flip while I was, while you were climbing off gallivanting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, but I climbed like a, it was about 21,500 feet. And, uh, I just found so many like parallels between mountain climbing and, and life. It's like mountain climbing high altitude is really hard and, and it's not a fast process for the most part. And so you have to, and even to, to climb a high mountain, you have to spend a lot of time doing nothing leading up to it. Like you just have to acclimate. So you just get to high ish altitude and then you wait, you know? Mm -hmm. So like Everest climbers, they'll spend six weeks prepping, acclimating their bodies before they actually get to push to do the thing that they were setting out to do. And then when you even go to set out to do it, it's like the slog of mountain climbing. It's like, this is terrible. Every step you're like, this freaking sucks. I want to turn around. But that moment when you get to the top, like makes it all worth it, you know? And so I just, personally experienced so many life parallels like man how many things in life like big goals that we have big like peaks that we're living towards and we get impatient and like we don't want to spend the time like preparing internally you know because if you try to rush to the top of a mountain you'll die uh you have to there has to be internal changes to your blood to your lungs that you can't see but they have to happen or you can't survive the peak 
And so for me, it's just like this parallel of, man, I need, I need to be changing internally. Maybe it feels like I'm not making progress to my goals, but like, am I improving as a person? Am I, am I morphing into who I need to be? Uh, so there's like the, the mystic side of climbing and the second side of it, man, it's, it's super cool. Not many, not that many people do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain element of risk, which is what makes it fun. Um, and it's just, I mean, I don't know. It's just cool. How many mountains have you climbed? I mean, just a few. Which, what was your favorite one? Uh, Mount Ilimani in Bolivia. Cause I always saw it growing up and oh, I always okay, wanted to climb cool. it and it kind of stands alone by itself. So it's just this really big imposing peak that there's nothing else really around. And it's just like, man, if I was on top of there, I'd feel like I was on top of the world. That's cool. So what, so how do you prepare? Like what's the preparation for doing that? And then, and then also like you said, it's a long process to do. Do you, is it, strenuous like every step is like your body is hurting or is it you it's more of like you just have to stick with it until you get there uh all of them (laughs) it's like it's strenuous and you're mentally you're like i don't want to do this like you're gasping for air you know and this was twenty one thousand feet obviously the higher you go the harder it gets physical preparation i would just try to do like and kind of intense workouts, but I kind of knew going to 21,000 feet, that's not like so high that you're likely to die from altitude or something. So I kind of knew it was going to mainly be like just mentally, can I make myself do it versus like my body being able to do it, you know, cause so much of mountain climbing is obviously you're going to go climb Everest. You need to get yourself in shape, but like if you're in reasonable shape, and you have the mental fortitude, you should be able to climb a 21,000 foot mountain, Mm -hmm. you know? And so for me, it was just like, I am choosing to do this or not, you know? Mm -hmm. And honestly, the day we summited that one, I was feeling like crap. It had snowed the night before. So it was hard to walk, was not feeling it at all. Like when we set off probably 10 minutes into the hike, I'm like, I'm exhausted. Dang. And, uh, I was kind of like all over the place. And then at some point my guide was like, like I don't know he's like you gotta get it together man he's like you're all over the place he's like just put your head down and follow my pace you know another good analogy there always good to have someone experienced that's better than you has more knowledge than you that you just shut up you hear what they have to say and you just put your head down and step where they step Mm, how long was the that process climbing that mountain was it like a day or no it's like a three-day oh event sort of maybe four depending on how you look at it so you hike for a while and then yeah you drive sleep in and a then tent. you hike and you, yeah, then you sleep and you hike more halfway up the next day sleep in another tent the rest of the way up the next day and then depending on how you feel you either go all the way down or you go halfway down cool and what's it like what like was that was there in that particular one was there one moment where you take one last step and then you're like okay this is the top not on that mountain, unfortunately. That one kind of has like a just like a rounded top, so you just kind of like you're at the top for a there. few steps for a little yeah. while, but yeah. And and also it was snowing and like cloudy, so when we actually only knew we were at the top, so the guide was like, "We're here." <laughs> <laughs> like looking around, like where where are we exactly? Uh, but no, it was it's one of those things. I got down and I was like, "I'm never doing that again." 
And really? then like after you accomplish this huge thing, and yeah. it's like you put on all, after you were done, you're like, I'm never doing that. Yeah. Wow. And a couple of weeks later, it's like, I got to have do to it. do that again. <laughs> was it like, a, was it like your, the way your body felt? I'm never doing it. Or was it just, it wasn't worth it or what was uh, it? It was just hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just really hard and just kind of, you know, you're uncomfortable and cold and it's like, there's not really, there's no like reason you're doing it. It's not like, not like your family's at the top and you have to rescue them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just choosing you're not to getting do paid it. to do it. Right. So yeah. it's like kind of pointless in a weird sense, but also not. So it's like, it's, it's really this weird, it's a weird thing to like, I'm not going to lie. So are you ready to go climb another one now? I would love to climb another one now. Hence the picture. What's the next one? Is, is that the next one? What, what mountain was that that you posted the picture of? That mountain's uh, called it. I'm a Dublam or something. It's in Nepal. It's a really crazy looking mountain. If you look at it very Yeah. The picture, if like the picture that he posted was, it was basically like a couple people. And then on their left side was like an infinite drop. And then on their right side was like an infinite drop. It was like, they were walking a tightrope almost and it was snowing and they were just like above the cloud. It was crazy. It is a very crazy picture. It's hard too though, because now with two kids, there is this element of like, because even when I was climbing before, we didn't have any kids, but even before the climb, there was part of it. It was like, why am I doing this? Like I have a wife at home. There's no point for me being out here. So I don't know, just being real. I don't know if like, I'd just be picky. I will definitely climb another mountain. I'll just be picky about what it is. Like the one I, the one I climbed, I climbed it for personal reasons. Like I'd seen it growing up, but there was also the fact of it is not like some advanced climb where you're having to just cling to the side of a, of a mountain. It's more of like an endurance steep hike. Mm -hmm. You still have crampons and you're in the snow and ice and you have an ice pick and all stuff. But realistically the odds of you dying on a climb like that are no different than if you were to go hike through the Rockies or something, I mean, maybe slightly higher, but they're minuscule. Well, 21,000 feet. That's yeah, I'm sure there's even, some additional, there's risk. some additional risk, but it's not like, it's not like every year people die climbing this mountain. Yeah. So if I were to do another one, it will, it would be some along those lines. There's one. I don't know if I would do that one. I put the picture of, mm-hmm. you know, I would love to think about doing it, but I don't know if I actually would. Uh, there's one in where is it? Kazakhstan. I'd like to do. It's called Peak Linen, and I'd kind of like to do it because it's a little taller. It's like seven thousand meters, so it's kind of like the step up. The last one I did was like sixty-five hundred meters or something. Uh, and then I would also like to do Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere. But the nice thing with it, especially with having kids, is that it is it is. Some people say it's super boring. It's literally a long high altitude hike like there's no the normal route there's like no technicality to it so you're not going to die mm-hmm. but it's going to be mentally hard long you long know? trek yeah so i think that would realistically that would probably be the next one because yeah, with kids you man my, my the risks reward it's right. like <laughs> um, this isn't how i feed my family i'm just why would i go i'm not gonna go do anything stupid right man. um so speaking of kids you have two kids. I'm about to have a kid. I need, I need a lot of, uh, I need some tips on parenting. What's the, what's the, how does it, how do you do it? How do you keep your kids alive? I'm like thinking about, we're about to have well, a baby and then let me tell you this. we're supposed to take them home. Like we're supposed to keep them alive. What the, I don't here's, know how to do that. Here's my overly pragmatic theory. And this probably comes from having, you've traveled some too. So having traveled a good bit, oftentimes to crazy third world places, 
and kids survive all over the world. You know, like it's not like mm -hmm. it's not like kids are just dying from parental mistakes left and right for like non-obvious things, you know. So I took some of that thought into it of like, okay, obviously I'm nervous, my first, you know, first kid, but they're also they're not they're not as fragile as people think they are, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think my only advice going back is probably just I think we've done a pretty good job of this is just enjoying it like yeah they're crying they're tiny they're crying and you're sleepy okay like mm -hmm. it's, it's gonna happen just a couple times in your life you know that you're gonna have this little tiny baby and so what they cry what else are they supposed to do they don't know how to do anything else you know it's the only way to communicate I think some people get like too freaked out about like I'm not getting any sleep. I guess just a season, you know, they will eventually start sleeping well, whether it's at three months or six months or a year or two years, you know, uh, but you're only going to have them. Like, I think some people miss that. Like, man, this is it. Like this season with your little kids, that's it. You don't ever get it again. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, you may have big career goals. You may want to take over the world with your business, but like, guess what? When your kids start school and go, grind out work hours, you know, but man, when they're like one, two, three, and just enjoy that time. Like you're never going to be old and be like, man, I wish I would have had three more years that I just really pushed into my business, you know, but you might be old and say, darn, I miss when my kids were little and I was working 80 hour work weeks. Yeah. You know? So we, that's like kind of one of our pillars is like, man, just obviously we have, there's that balance. You can't just go into a cocoon and not do work, but the in my opinion, especially when they're young, like, man, just relax. Just how old are your kids right present. now? Uh, three and a half and one and a half. Okay. Uh, so what, so what is your normal balance on, on work and spending time with them? Like, are you working five days a week or half a days or what, what's your, well, our work is different. I mean, normally I get up with the girls cause the youngest one still doesn't sleep well. So I'll get up like six thirty ish and get them going, you know, and I normally start working, answering emails at least right when I get up. Uh, and then throughout the day, it just kind of depends. Abby will normally bring the girls by, um, whatever project we're working on. Um, or I'll try to grab lunch with them or we go grab coffee in the middle of the day. It's kind of fluid. You know, mm -hmm. some people think some people probably think I don't work because like we try to, I try to be around Abby and the girls as much as I can while still getting stuff done. And then in the evening, uh, I'd, honestly, Abby and I normally would get the girls down at seven, seven thirty, and we the next couple of hours we're going over work stuff, you know. So this it's weird. Cause it's not eight to five. You work for yourself, so it's kind of like you're you're kind of always working, and you're kind of not always working. Yeah, or you're kind of always not working. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, just kind of whatever you yeah, need people, to do. I, I know people to have people talk a lot about having like the work life balance and things like that, but I've heard a few people especially recently talk about like there's no work life and life life. Right. It's just like your life. It's just life. And right. So you just do it all. Right. And then you make time for the most important things. Right. And then, you know, fill in the gaps with the other stuff. Yeah. It's like, I'll always bring Jess to the home Depot and you know, she likes going there. So it's like, I get to, if I have to, if I have to go pick stuff up, a lot of times I'll bring her cause it slows me down. Sure. But it's also the larger rock is, time with my kids, you mm -hmm. know, so I get to kind of do both at one time.
What's um, I'm curious to know if there's one thing or maybe there's like a million or maybe there's zero uh, thing that is completely different as a parent than what you thought it would be before you had kids. Uh, I think that there's something you totally just thought you, you just totally got it wrong and it's totally the different. No, I, I wouldn't think so. I had no expectations. I was the youngest. I was never around little kids. I had, had zero expectations, honestly. Uh, I think one of the weird things is probably going to sound, I mean, maybe ever, maybe it won't sound weird, but is like how much you can love this little kid and like you really do grasp like man no matter how bratty your kid is no matter how like frustrated you are they won't stop crying like it doesn't matter like you might be frustrated you know but like your level of love for them doesn't change it gives you a really good spiritual perspective of like like I've had some just being transparent I've had some like emotional spiritual moments when like something in my soul finally grasps that like Hey, the way that I feel about this little girl is like the way that God feels about me, you know, and it really will drastically, it can drastically affect your spiritual life. Um, and the second, so that's been one thing is like just so many spiritual parallels, especially I think as a father, like we always read about God as the father. And so now being a father, it's like, you just get it. You're like, whoa, okay. Nothing, nothing your kid can ever do. Like your kid could spit in your face and do literally say the worst things to you and just disregard you. And you still would be like, come give me a hug, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And then the second thing is I think going through life, sometimes we look at big milestones and we think that like that milestone is going to make us feel different, you know, like, Oh, well when I'm, when I'm married. And so we envision this world of like, Oh, when I'm married, I'm like going to be transformed into a different person. Oh, when I have a, when I'm a parent, I'll then be transformed into this person. I mean, you are who you are. So like when you have a kid, you still feel like you and you start realizing that like, that's also how your parents feel like your parents don't feel like your parents, if that makes sense. They just feel mm -hmm. like them. Mm -hmm. So you start to view, I think your parents a little bit differently because you're like, man, they don't feel however old they are. You know, my parents don't feel 65 ish. They just feel like them. And then, cause you feel that way too. And so you're not like magically, in my experience, you're not just going to be like, Oh my God, I'm a father. No, <laughs> I'm all wise. So I mean, like your issues are still your issues. You got problems. They're still there. In fact, they're probably magnified now cause you're going to be a little bit more stressed and have less sleep. So it doesn't change. It changes you, but it doesn't change you. Hmm. So like only you change you. And that to me has been like a takeaway. Like, man, if I want to change my issues, I got to fix my issues. There's no magical summit that's going when i reach it it's going to to alter my like internal character if that makes sense mm -hmm. so i think it's been another takeaway it's you know and my third takeaway with kids is just perspective like once you have your kids you you start thinking like like man at the end of the day if you have some huge business but like your kids don't like you or don't know you like who cares like who cares? You die. And then like, does anyone, like, does anyone care? I just take, uh, I think it's some company that's been around a while. Let's just take, this is probably not even accurate. Let's take like the empire state building. And let's say you were the guy that like, I'm going to buy this land and build the empire state building. No one even, no one even knows who you, 50 years from no one's going to know who you are, yeah. much less care. They might be like, Oh, that's a cool building. Like no one's going to care. Whereas if you had, kids and you poured into them and then they have grandkids and you've poured into them and now you're like this 
patriarch of all these people that flow from you with all of like whatever character things you were able to ingrain into them in this culture. Like, and that's a legacy. Mm -hmm. A legacy is not like some dumb business that nobody cares about. (laughs) A legacy is like those close to you and what you pour into them, you know? Cool. And they could build like 50 Empire State Buildings. Right. (laughs) But then the funny thing is, you as their parent, you won't give a crap. (laughs) Yeah. You might have one that built the Empire State Building and you're like, wow, I'm so proud of you. And you might have one that's like a vet and you're like, I'm equally proud of you. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like in the book, The Shack, Love It or Hate It, where the God character of every person that comes up, the God character says, oh, I'm especially fond of them. It's like you realize that with your kids. You're like, they're totally different. And this one might be really well-behaved. This one might be more difficult. But you're like, oh, I'm especially fond of Jessa. Oh, I'm especially fond of Kinley. And it's like there's no conflict. It's just different. That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, At the risk of getting too deep or too personal, what what kind of legacy do you hope to leave? Uh, I want to leave a legacy of like a few things, but one that always comes to mind first is just generosity. I think that that's one of the most important things you can have, you know, because I feel like if you're generous, then it means that you're keeping a proper perspective. You're keeping a loose grip on money and you're keeping an eternal perspective on like what's important, you know, which is people. So to me, if you're, if a baseline is I'm going to be generous, then that's probably going to keep your, your course pretty correct. So generous, but also, uh, I think like an overcoming attitude of my, my, my personal life word is just the word relentless. And it's like, I feel like you really can accomplish whatever it is in life, whether it's good relationships or a business or whatever the thing is that you're focused on. It can be multiple things, but if you just don't give up, you can have those things. Like if you have a kid that's really hard to deal with, man, if you just don't give up as the parent and you just love that kid relentlessly, and you're going to end up with a relationship with that kid. You know, uh, if you have a business, you, if you just don't give up and you truly pursue it, then maybe that business doesn't work, but you're going to transform and then maybe your next one works, you know? So to me, it's just that not giving up attitude. Uh, and then the final one legacy, I'd like to just be a legacy of, you know, character and integrity. Cause to me, those are like the key if you don't have that, like who, who cares if you get rich by scamming people, who cares? You know, if you're have paint this great business face, but at home with your family, you're a monster or you're not present, man, who cares? You know, if I can't look you in the eyes and say, and trust you to do what you tell me you're going to do, like what, what kind of legacy is that? You know? So to me, that'd probably the, the most important thing if I'm, when I'm dead one day at my funeral, I hope people would say, my God, that guy was generous. He never gave up. And if he said he was going to do it, he did it. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I got like one more question. Cause I do want to talk about, um, the compassion that you're the nonprofit that you have. Yeah. And, um, uh, that was like actually a perfect segue just for a couple more minutes. Um, so you have a nonprofit compassion United and I want to, kind of hear what your vision is, what you've done and then what your vision is for that. Cause then I think that play, what you just articulated so awesome, which would have been a perfect ending point to the podcast, <laughs> which was like so powerful and awesome. Uh, but I think that that's the, kind of the reason that you have this and the reason, and like a lot of what you just mentioned is you will hopefully be able to accomplish and then spread across a lot of people with the nonprofit. Yeah. So tell me about that. 
Uh, so really the reason I got into real estate was because I want to do nonprofit stuff. Uh, but I just have always had this dream of I want to do nonprofit stuff, but I do not want to pull a salary and I want to be able to run an organization with no personal financial attachment to it so that I can just do what's best, you know, without it providing my, my bread for my table. Long story short, I finally do have a nonprofit, Compassion United, and the, the goal over the years has kind of transitioned into this thing where I know there's large organizations that are doing good work, but I also, through personal experience, have learned that there's lots of people out there that are doing really great things in really rough areas, but just nobody knows what they're doing. And so their struggle oftentimes is like, I mean, I, I know of these people in Mexico and every month they're like, I mean, they have next to no money, but they're caring for like 40 kids that have been rescued out of like human trafficking, like horrific stories. When you hear them, you think that it can't be real. And yet they're caring for these like 40 kids, but no one really knows that they're doing it. And so there's probably people over here that would love to give if they were told these people's story in a compelling way, but there's just, there's this disconnect. So I ultimately want Compassion United to be a, essentially a brokerage for projects where you can come to Compassion United's website or whatever and click on any country in the world and, and get a list of like, whether local or you know western people doing missions work in these countries and you can see a little video about their project a little bio about the person and you can know that they've been vetted as much as a, you know as much as you can vet someone overseas and it, when you give it will actually go to that project you know and then i'd also love to be able to connect i guess through social media where you can now begin to like communicate with this person you know so you can feel that personal connection um so that's what i would like to build it into cool you know and tell me uh quickly because i know you got to go what uh what's kind of the some of the projects that you've been involved with in and in, been involved in recently i know you just went to nepal last year yeah we did nepal uh full transparency we were, we were raising money for a safe house over there but we weren't able to raise enough money <laughs> but that was the goal uh and i've worked with uh of course the people in mexico a good bit those are kind of the two that we've mainly worked with uh, and there's a guy, I want to go over there, visit him, still the guy in, um, Kenya. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, it's not a, it's not a lot right now, but that's my, my heart. Cool. That's cool. Well, I'll definitely let you get out of here. I appreciate you, you, you talking to me. I know I feel like we could talk for another couple hours because yeah. it, it was really, really cool. But uh, I appreciate it. Adam Pitts, real estate mogul and legacy lever. Is that was that our themes for the? That was good. <laughs> cool. And now Chase knows a few more things. I know a few more things for sure. <laughs> definitely some big things I think that I could take away from yeah. that too. So I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks a lot, dude. No problem, man. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Chase Doesn't Know podcast. If you've listened to all three episodes, wow, props to you. Please message me on Instagram, and I will personally buy you a meal at Raising Cane's. Speaking of, Raising Cane's did sponsor indirectly and unofficially this episode, again, of the Chase Doesn't Know podcast. And if you're interested to see some of the things that Adam Pitts and his wife are working on, uh, you can follow them on their Instagram account. Their Instagram handle is Pits. And that's pits with two T's. They post some things that they're working on. Always cool to see before and after pictures. Very, very cool. Anyways, thanks again for listening. And I will see you on the next episode.